One thing I'd like to bring to your attention, and that is on September 12th, we're going back to a new order of service, something we contemplated before COVID, and uh, so we're kind of taking a step of faith. That new service is going to look like this. At the 9.30 hour, there is going to be the first creative service. It will be in the chapel, and I'll be preaching live over there. That will be the only service while Sunday school classes are going on everywhere else. And then around the 11 o'clock hour, actually 10 minutes to 11, a second creative service will go on. It will have a video of the sermon, but there'll be live worship uh, over there. And then at 11.05, there'll be one balance service, and it will be here. Uh, That's kind of like the old days, right? Used to go to Sunday school first, and then 11 o'clock, go to worship service. And so the one balance service will be in here. You say, Pastor, how do you know this is going to work? And my answer is, I don't. But we're going to get up in the air and fly, and we'll change our flight pattern if need be. Uh, But we think this is a good plan, and there are so many things that weigh into this. You wouldn't believe the charts that Pastor Korb have come up with. Uh, I just, my mind can't take them. I lose sleep if I try to understand them. But he has looked at it from every angle And uh, we think this is the best way to move forward, and we'll see. So pray about that. I trust that you will be involved in an adult Bible class, or maybe you're involved in a small group. Uh, Either one of those is great, and then you'll come to a worship time Sunday morning as we uh, plan ahead. Let's pray. Forgiven, Father, what a beautiful word, and it comes from you. You're the one who told us to address you as Father and to hallow your name and to pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on this earth just like it's done in heaven. And Lord, you've told us that we are to forgive others just as you have forgiven us. And in light of that rich forgiveness, may we be kind to all around us. And Lord, now as we open your word, we're cognizant of the fact that everything we try to do in and of ourselves will fail. And preaching is in that same category. So is listening. We can't do it without the author of the book, the blessed Holy Spirit, coming down, enlightening our minds, controlling our mouths, so that the outcome is a clear understanding of the word of God for the glory of God. And that's what we pray today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said with Carol, amen. I have a good pastor friend who shared with me this story. It was the story of his first time he ever preached. He was gonna be preaching to a youth group and he was thrilled. He took the book of Hebrews as his text and pulled out of that one word that he wanted to focus on. It was the word preserve. Oh, and he went at it with all of his energy. He talked about how that word meant to maintain. God preserves us. He protects us. He safeguards us. He said it's, it's like a, a fruit preserves. You know, you, you take that sweet spread, you create that wonderful jam or preserve, I guess it's actually called, you put it in a jar and the fruit is preserved. 
He said it's like a nature preserve. It's an area of pristine beauty in, in, the, in the land. So wildlife can have the benefit of this back to nature, real nature experience. The land is preserved. Oh, I tell you, he gave it everything he had. And when he was done, first sermon, he was quite pleased with himself. Until a friend came up and said, dude, don't you understand that the word in Hebrews is not preserve, it's persevere. <laughs> and he almost quit the ministry. But thankfully, he's still going on, and whatever humbles us helps us, and he learned to be a little more studious in the future. You know, there's a lot of people who get that word wrong, persevere. Some people say... God does all of that for me. I'm saved by grace, not by works. Perseverance is a work. I don't persevere. And then there are the others, the opposite, who say, God saved me, but I have to keep myself saved. Perseverance is my addition, my contribution to my salvation. God saves me. I have to keep myself saved. Still others might say something like this. Oh, that's part of that confusing system called Calvinism. Perseverance of the saints. If John Calvin is for it, I'm against it. Because there's a lot of people who misunderstand that word. But it's not what man says that matters. It's what God says that counts, right? And when you go to the book of Hebrews, you see indeed that God says, I'm for it. But you have to understand what he means. In essence, God is saying in the book of Hebrews, perseverance is the birthmark of true believers. Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're now in chapter 6. Someone asked me, have we given up on Hebrews? No, nope. here we are again. And we hope by God's grace to persevere to the very end. But perseverance is one of the major themes in the book of Hebrews. It's like a peanut v uh, vendor calling out uh, in the midst of a ball game. This theme just cries out to us. Listen, look, pay attention. We have to remember that the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to and the Holy Spirit has chosen to make that author anonymous, he's writing to a group of believers who have a Jewish background. And although they are called, like in chapter 3, verse 1, holy brethren and partakers of the heavenly calling, he warns them not to drift away, chapter 2, verse 1. Not to turn away, chapter 3, verse 12. And now we're going to see he's going to talk about not falling away, which has previously been mentioned. So true believers, but given warning. In the past, they've been very brave. You read in chapter 10 how they willingly gave up their uh, goods, the confiscation of their property, how they put their life at risk and stood with those who were being persecuted. I mean, their faith and their witness was amazing. But now, now they're thinking of returning back to Judaism and in essence, leaving Jesus Christ. And so the author wants them to know very clearly that this is a very foolish decision. 
In the past, they had been brave, but in the present, they're spiritually dull. Last time we were together, we looked at the end of chapter five. By this time, you should be teachers, but now you still need someone to spoon feed you. You need someone to give you the milk of the word because solid meat is for mature believers, and you're not there, though by this time, you should be. And the future looked frightening. The marks of spiritual immaturity were clearly in the church. And that's why we read in chapter 6 and beginning verse, with verse 1, it's time to move forward and go on to maturity. Moving forward, that's what true believers really do. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore, let us move forward or beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. By the way, that translation taken forward is really, really wonderful because in the original language, it is a passive sense in which God picks us up and carries us forward. Now in other places in Hebrews, it's going to talk about our persevering and our responsibility and duty, but it's both us and God in this thing called sanctification or moving beyond. So move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ, being taken forward to maturity, that's the goal. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instruction about cleansing rites, some translations have the word baptisms. The laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, and God permitting, this is exactly what we plan to do. Because true believers move forward in their Christian faith. Now, he's not talking about abandoning these elementary principles. They're not bad things. They're just basic things. When you learn your ABCs, you proceed to the next grade level. You move on in your education. The basics are a great place to start, but the basics are a bad place to stop. And although we keep growing in the gospel and understanding its wonder and its depth and its beauty, and we never outlive the gospel, we have to go on beyond some of the basics. You can't lay a foundation twice. I've never seen that in a building. I've never seen while the walls are going up on a previously laid foundation that the builder says, hey, let's put another foundation up there. It's ridiculous. Only one foundation has been laid, and that is the person of Christ Jesus. And in the building of a life, we're built on Christ, but we want to grow. And so what you have here are six foundational features, and they're actually three couplets. They're all together. So the six foundational features, here's the first one, repentance and faith. This is talking about coming to God. You know what repentance is. It's described as repentance from acts that lead to death. It's turning away from the things we used to trust in. It's changing our mind about our former way of life, our love of sin and living in it. And it's changing or turning to God. And that's where faith in God comes in. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. You can't truly put your faith in God unless you're leaving everything else. 
And when you leave everything else, repentance, true repentance, is leaving sin and turning to the living God. This is basic. This is how they start the Christian life. And you don't get saved over and over again. Now, if you're confused about it, settle it so you can move on. Some people never settle this matter and never go beyond. And that's a sad state to be in, in maturity. The second couplet is washings, which is probably a better translation, and the laying on of hands. And this has to do with a church connection or the assembly as it was with the Hebrews. Ceremonial washings or cleansing rites as this same word is used in chapter 9 and verse 10. And by the way, these basic principles that show our faith in Christ are rooted and grounded in Judaism. Some of the people that this author is writing to are Pharisees, teachers of the law. You read in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 7, where when the gospel went out, many of the priests came to faith in Christ. And they might be some of this very group, Pharisees and priests, who came to Christ but are now thinking of going back because the persecution was just too hot. Well, in the Jewish system, there were all kinds of ceremonial washings. You go to Jerusalem today, you see the ruins of mikvahs, a ritual bath everywhere around the city. The Greek word here that is used for washings is never used for Christian baptism, and it's in the plural, and the Christian baptism is a singular event. So it seems that these are basic things that kind of connect us with a fellowship, the, the, the washings and even the, bapti the baptizing could refer to John the Baptist who was the forerunner of Christ and his baptism was important but superseded by the person of Christ. And then the laying on of hands. In the Jewish system, in the Old Testament, you would lay your hands on a sacrifice, bring the sacrifice to the priest and the hands would be laid on the sacrifice and that was symbolic of your sins going on the sacrifice which would pay atonement for your sin. And it was carried over in the New Testament, the hand of blessing. Jesus put his hand on little children and blessed them, took them into his arms. And later on, even Timothy has the laying on of the hands uh, of the elders as he is commissioned for ministry. So it's very much now uh, an advance of coming to God, now connecting with his church, and it's kind of a church and worship focus. The last one is the resurrection and the judgment. And so the resurrection of Christ has already happened, but our resurrection has not. And judgment is coming, so this is futuristic. So you've got the coming to Christ and then connection with his people and now a looking forward to what is coming. By the way, the Sadducees were a very religious political group in Jesus' day. The Pharisees were a very conservative religious group in Jesus' day. And they believed in the resurrection and life after and the judgment. But what they didn't realize is that they were dead themselves spiritually and on their way to judgment. And they had no clue that Jesus indeed was God's son. And some who did were thinking of giving up. Real Christians move forward. You know, it's easy to sometimes see emotional immaturity in people, right? 
Women who have just been married and found out what a man is like. Say, man, I thought I was marrying a man. This guy's a boy. (laughs) Emotional immaturity. uh, The psychologists will tell us there are easy factors to see deflecting blame, easily angered when they don't get their way. They blow up. Or some are passive aggressive and just simmer and pout. (laughs) That's immaturity. It's easy to see. And everywhere they go, they seem to ruin relationships. Now, in one sense, we all have our occasional moments, don't we? We're all a work in process. But there's a far difference from occasional immaturity as opposed to habitual immaturity. And spiritually speaking, it's the same. We can all have our moments of falling and failure, of not acting in a wise, mature, godly fashion. But if that is habitual, well, my friend, that is frightening because real Christians move forward. And that's why this command in chapter 6 is so vitally important. Some people are mature beyond their years. You've seen that, haven't you? And a lot of people are immature according to their years. I like the quote that I mentioned a couple weeks ago. You're young only once, but you can be immature forever. And unfortunately, it seems like some people who put their faith and trust in Christ are actually trying to prove that in a spiritual sense. True believers move forward. That's what true believers do. Now, secondly, the author of Hebrews moves into a different area where he says, he talks about falling away. This is what true believers don't do. They don't fall away. Now, this is one of the most considered by many Bible scholars and theologians, one of the most problematic passages in all the Scripture. (laughs) And I can remember many times when I've struggled with this and fought with it, and the end of round 10, I'm beaten and bruised, and I don't know whether I've won. It's hard to understand. But we'll try to... um, jump over some of the debate and try to look at uh, what we might glean from this passage. Look at verse 4. This is where it starts. It is impossible. And the rest of the sentence is picked up in verse 6. For those who have fallen away. And in, in between, there's something of a, not a parenthesis necessarily, but a description of those who are falling away. Verse 4 again, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. For their loss, in their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. Crucifying the Son of God afresh. And they're subjecting him to public disgrace. 
Let me read it from a slightly different translation. This is the New English Bible. I like the way they've translated. For when people have been once enlightened, when they have tasted of the heavenly gift and share in the Holy Spirit, when they have experienced the goodness of God's word and spiritual powers of the age to come, and after all this fall away, it is impossible to bring them back again to repentance for with their own hands they are crucifying the son of God and making a mockery of his death sober words eh now I think first of all we need to see what is clear in this passage this rather challenging and problematic passage and I think it's important to understand when you study the scriptures that you always interp- interpret those portions of scripture that are obscure by the portions of scripture that are clear, by the obvious passages. And so that's what I think you have to do here, which leads me to my first point. True believers cannot lose their salvation. Now, if you only had the book of Hebrews, that might be a harder statement to make. Although there are portions in the book of Hebrews we'll see that support this. But all of the analogy of Scripture backs it up. Portions of Scripture like John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word, Jesus speaking, and believes in me and the one who sent me, has eternal life and will not come into condemnation. They have passed from death into life. And those are all statements of a reality indicative of what has actually taken place. Or how about this one? John chapter 10, my sheep hear my my voice and I know them and they follow me. They move forward. And I give to them eternal life, Jesus says, and they shall never perish. Nor shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. Snatch them away from me. Why? Because you're not holding on to God. God is holding on to you. Isn't that a great image? But he doesn't stop there. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can pluck them from my Father's hand. So here's the imagery. I'm in Christ, and Christ is in God, and there's no way you're getting me away from him. Those who put their faith and trust are held by the promise of the God who cannot lie, and we are clutched in the Savior's hand. Or how about Romans chapter 8? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. We like to quote that, don't we? To those who are called according to his purpose. But what is his purpose? Why do all things work together for good? Verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Some call this the golden chain. There is no break in the chain. If you are called of God and justified in Christ, you will be glorified. 
You say, Pastor, I don't understand those words of foreknowledge and predestination. Well, they're Bible words and they're Bible concepts and I believe it's a great mystery, but it's also a great comfort. And don't quibble over the lack of understanding because there's a lot of things you don't understand, but grab the promise of God. Those who are justified will be glorified. And then he goes on. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Rhetorical question, obvious answer. Nobody is separating us from the love of God. How about trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Nope. For it is written in the book of Psalms all day long, we are considered like sheep going to the slaughter. There's a lot of persecution for Christians, but God's still holding on. Now, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through God who loved us. I'm convinced, Paul says, that neither death or life, angels, demons, things present, things to come, not any power, height or depth or anything in all creation. There's no way that you can say absolutely nothing better than that. There's no more what ifs after Paul is done. And he says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are truly saved, you cannot be lost. So what does the scripture say here? Well, here's another thing. If you could lose your salvation, if you could, you could never get it back again. There's a lot of people who believe you can lose your salvation and they get it back, lose it, get it back, lose it. No, sorry. The word says, "Uh uh-uh. If you fall away and lose it, it's gone. There's no getting it back. Now, in light of all of this, it's important to remember that real believers can backslide. You say, well, pastor, where's the line between backsliding and actually falling away? Why do you want to know? (laughs) I want to get as close as I can with, no, no, can't play that game with God. Uh Uh-uh. Real Christians can backslide. But they don't fall away. And I don't know where the line is. And you shouldn't test God to find out. I like what J.C. Ryle says, the old bishop of Liverpool. He said, it's a miserable thing to be a backslider. Of all unhappy things that can befall people, I suppose that backsliding is the worst. He talks about a stranded ship, a broken winged eagle, a garden overrun with weeds, a harp without strings, a church in ruins. All these are sad sights. But a backslider is a sadder sight still. That true grace shall never be extinguished and true union with Christ never be broken off, I feel no doubt. But I do believe that a person may fall so far away that they lose sight of the grace that God has given them and despair of their own salvation. That's exactly what it says in 2 Peter. You can go so far away if you're not pressing forward that you will have forgotten and you will have lost assurance. Ryle goes on to say, if this is not hell, it is certainly the next thing to it. The last thing that is 
abundantly clear is this. This thing called falling away is serious. Don't mess with it. Run to Christ. Don't contemplate leaving him, but run to him. And I think maybe the best way to sum it up is simply by saying 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal. The Lord knows them that are his. We don't, he does. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from wickedness. That's the warning. So what is probable here then if it sounds like someone can lose their salvation. Let me give you two possibilities. Number one, a hypothetical scenario, which simply means these are real Christians he's talking about, and if they could fall, hypothetically, there's no way for them to come back. They have been enlightened. They have tasted of the heavenly gift, the goodness of the word of God, the power of the age to come. They have been partakers of the Holy Spirit. All this language is kind of used in chapter 10, verse 32, of true, genuine believers. In chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus tasted of death on our behalf, and it wasn't symbolic. He really tasted it. So what the writer is saying is, if a real Christian could fall away, hypothetical, there's no way of coming back. So it's hypothetical. They can't. In fact, he's proving the point they can't. But if they could, they're gone. If God will lose his grip and Jesus will lose his grip and all of his promises are wrong, you are in trouble. And so am I. If Jesus fails me, I'm a goner. The second is a superficial scenario. And by that I mean these appear to be real Christians, but they aren't. They've come close, but they're not true believers. Almost, but not born again. So they have all the outward trappings. They've enjoyed the things of God, but they are not indeed redeemed. Philip Hughes, who has written an excellent commentary on Hebrews, says this, It is plain that our author does not contemplate the possibility that the work of God in the lives of those to whom he is writing may fail or be frustrated, for he expresses confidence concerning them. When he has reason to fear, what he has reason to fear is this, that among the real believers are those who have professed Christian faith, enjoyed Christian fellowship, engaged in Christian witness, but may prove to be hypocrites. In the end, enemies of Christ, by turning from the light they've known and showing that they don't belong to the people of God at all. That's scary, isn't it? Either one of those gives us a serious warning. This sounds a lot like 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have stayed with us, but they went out to show they were not really of us. The author of Hebrews loves his people so much pastorally that he's giving them the hard news like a doctor would. If you don't change your ways... This could prove something that none of us want to acknowledge. Maybe you're not a believer at all. 
Now, I have to say this. A sermon like this has a tendency to disturb the sensitive conscience of a real Christian. And some of you begin to say, oh, no, I'm not continuing like I should. I must not be saved. Flee to Christ. Trust in him. You've trusted in him before. Just acknowledge that again. I just heard a real strong Bible believer. Well, it was D.A. Carson, a great mind. He said, I can't wait to get to heaven to see when I was converted. <laughs> Isn't that good? <laughs> I know I am. I just don't know when. So I'm, I'm afraid to upset the sensitive, true Christian soul, but I'm also afraid that I won't disturb those who think they're saved, but they aren't. I mean, that's part of my duty, to wake you up if you're truly sleeping. And I can't do it, by the way. It's got to be the Spirit. <laughs> and He will. And I pray that He will, so that you can truly know the Savior. He even gives an illustration in verse 7 and 8. Land that drinks in rain often falling on it and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receive the blessing of God. That's the whole idea of you shall know them by their fruits. Good land, good fruit. But that same rain falls on another land that produces thorns and thistles, is worthless, and in danger of being cursed. And in the end... It won't be blessed, but burned. Two kinds of people in this world. Those who know God and those who don't. Now you can divide those two categories and a lot of other ones, like those who play the game and look like real believers, but aren't. And those that we think aren't real believers because they don't always do what we think they should do, but they are. The Lord knows them that are his. So... I love the words in verse 9 because they're encouraging words. And at about at this moment, you and I need a little encouragement. So the writer says to these people he's really giving a hard message to, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. I did not write this message with a list of names. Oh, that family, yeah, they're lost. They need this. That family, boy, I'm going to speak at them today. And no, no, I didn't do that. I look at you, dear friends and family in the church of Christ, and I'm convinced of better things. But to have a group this large, without anyone faking it, is almost hard to believe. Thus the message comes out strong and clear. If you follow him, that's the mark of a real believer. If you fall away and give up on Christ, that's the mark of those who don't know him. Verse 10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you've shown him and the help you've given his people and even now, continue to help him. Isn't that interesting? They're immature, but they continue to help out. Verse 11, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience. What's that? Faith and patience. Perseverance. That's one of the best 
definitions of perseverance. Faith that doesn't give up. And you'll inherit at the end what God has promised. The greatest proof of conversion is continuance. The greatest characteristic of a genuine Christian is that they continue to follow the Lord. They don't drift away. They don't fall away. Well, they drift, but they come back. They don't fall away as of to give up. They don't leave Christ and give up on him. The birthmark of a real believer is that they persevere. You say, how can I do that? Well, verse 4 of chapter 6 says it's impossible for the fallen to be recovered. But verse 18 of chapter 6, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week, says it's impossible for God to lie. The bad impossibility and the good impossibility. God cannot lie. Verse 18, there are two unchangeable things. God takes an oath to show that he's not lying. And secondly, his very character makes it impossible for him to lie so that we who have fled to take hold of the hope that is set before us may be greatly encouraged. And we have this hope as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. I'm told by those who visit the catacombs, those tunnels under ancient Rome where early Christians were buried. I'm told that when you go through those tunnels, you see three common symbols. You see the dove, the fish, and an anchor. All symbols of early believers. The dove refers to the Holy Spirit that came upon Christ like a dove. The second is the fish. And in the fish... There are five Greek letters that actually spell the word fish, ichthus. But each one of the letters stands for a different word to form a creed. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And you'll see, you can still see the fish sign etched in the marble stones of Ephesus. The last is an anchor. Because those believers were going through hard times and their hope was in Christ and Jesus was like an anchor of the soul. You say, where do you get that image? Right here, Hebrews 6, verse 18, we have this hope in Christ from God who cannot lie. And this causes us to be sure, assurance, and steadfast. Keep going. By the way, there are over 66 anchors etched in the catacombs that they've found up to this date. We have an anchor, don't we, in Jesus Christ? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, founded on the rock that cannot move, founded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the hard words of God are meant for all of us to examine our soul. But even simple, genuine, childlike faith is all you ask. And when 
someone trusts the Lord, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved, and all the promises of God enter in. But the proof of conversion is continuance. And the birthmark of every believer is perseverance. Lord, speak to our hearts today. Speak to some people right now who need to say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin and I come to you and ask you to save me right now. Create in me a new heart that longs to grow and move forward. And by your grace, kept by the power of God, may I never fall. And there, Lord, are some true believers who have drifted away. They've slidden back. And the slide needs to stop. May today they come in repentance and say, Lord, forgive me and help me to move forward. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Save those who are crying out to you right now. Deliver them. Wash the stain from the believer's heart. And renew our mind that we might follow thee. the souls that are doing business with you right now. We cry out in the name of Jesus, our wonderful Savior. Amen.